want to start this morning by telling you about a young mother, a young woman in the Roman Empire named Perpetua. She was from North Africa in Carthage, and she was arrested along with, I think, five other believers um, by the Roman governor, Roman authorities, because simply she was a Christian. And they were in that mode of, of persecuting Christians at that point in time. And it was a, it was a capital offense. The, the Romans wanted all people to worship the, the Roman emperor. You could offer this incense as a way to um, show your loyalty to the Roman state. But Christians would not do such a thing because we believe in worshiping one God alone. And, and so it became dangerous to become a Christian. And, and Perpetua was arrested. Her father was a man of status, means, and he managed to um, convince the authorities to let her go see him. And he, he came to her and pleaded with her to recant her faith. You know, what does it matter if you do this little thing? Why can't you, why can't you just go along? Um, and he especially appealed to her on behalf of her infant. He, he, her father did pull enough strings that she was allowed and able to still nurse while she was awaiting the, the results, the, the persecution, um, or the prosecution. And, and so he said, if not, you know, first of all, he said, do it for me, you know. And they said, well, ultimately, then do it for your child. Do you want him to grow up without a mother? Um, but she refused. She held steadfast. And, and so the, the day came, and the governor, whose name was Hilarionis, um, came before for him. And the father, again, made a last appeal to Perpetua to, to do it. And, and then the governor himself implored her, and this is what he said, Hilarionis, probably wishing to avoid the unpleasantness of executing a mother who was still suckled a child, added, have pity on your father's gray head, have pity on your infant son, offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperor. Perpetua replied simply, I will not. Are you a Christian then, asked the governor. Yes, I am, Perpetua replied. And with that, she was condemned, along with um, the four other believers they were sent into the arena, and the crowds roared with excitement to see their fate. They were uh, wild animals were unleashed upon them, hungry wild animals, uh, leopards and, and others. And, and the animals drew blood, and it, 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 they were doing damage, and, and, but it was going too slowly, so the crowds began cheering for them just to finish it. And so they were lined up and killed with the sword. Christians from early on learned that if they stood, stood fast with Jesus, they were going to face persecution, hostility from the world. Jesus, in our passage today, warned us that it would be so, right? He, he said, the world we live in will hate you as followers of Christ. The thing that stuck out to me is the contrast with last week, right? Last week was all about love, right? Love one another. We, we did love songs and all that. And, and how, 
how many times really the word love can't be, gets mentioned in the, the, up to this point. And then all of a sudden, in verse 18, you know, Jesus switches gears and says, oh, by the way, don't expect the world to love you. Instead, be ready for the world to, to come against you, to, to have hostility towards you. Jesus wanted to make sure he was preparing his disciples to follow him after Jesus had left and gone back to be with the Father. Now, as I even talk about this, I want to make sure we keep something in perspective. Because we, as American Christians, face nothing like the hostility and persecution that believers throughout the world have faced throughout history. Um, and we, there's one thing I, I want to keep in mind. Opposition is not the same as persecution. I still think it's true. We face opposition within this world we live in, even if we're not facing persecution. So it's, even just getting the language right um, is helpful. We still definitely face a cultural attitude of, of, of opposition from our culture. And in fact, at different times, my, my sermon title is Supportive, Indifferent, or hostile. And we're going to later in the sermon talk, you know, what, what do we see in our, our society today? Which one of those? Is, has it been supportive of us following Christ or hostile or just plain indifferent? So what I want to do is I want to look at the passage we have and look in depth at what Jesus is saying. And, and then I want to, we'll just talk. What, what does this tell us for today? How should we think about this for our time? But I want to dig deep into first the, the actual wording. In, in verse 18, Jesus, again, it's a, it's a shift in tone from, as I have loved you, love one another. Now he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So we should not be surprised if we face persecution or hostility as we try to follow Jesus, as we are on the path of discipleship, if we align with Christ. Sometimes it's, it's outright they're, they're working against us. Sometimes we get mocked. We just shouldn't be surprised. Um, note that is an if. Sometimes we feel it and sometimes we don't. Things, things go okay. And, and I, you think, and Jesus is, gives us a, a reason, like, it, look at how they treated me. And you think about how did they retreat Jesus? Well, they rejected him. He, he suffered. They, they mocked him. They opposed him. And then, but there were other times the crowds followed. Uh, in fact, there's a fickleness to our culture and society, right? The, there's fads that take place. And, and so you think of that. We saw, we'll see that as we get to Palm Sunday where the crowds cheered for him, cheered him on as the king of the Jews. And then five days later, they crucified him, right? That's what Jesus experienced. That too will be what we often see. It, it, it's like the world doesn't get it, right? Jesus says, um, or the beginning of John started saying, the, the light had come into the world, but the darkness did not understand the light, could not grasp the light, could not overcome the light. Jesus, Jesus it's, it talks about the light came and he was in the world, though the world was made through him, that the world did not know him. So if that's what Jesus experienced, we can expect that we will get the same as his followers. Verse 19, 
if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. And there we see the, the ultimate basis of this. It's who you belong to, right? Who, who's, you know, if you're of the world, meaning do you belong to the world or do you belong to another? When we put our faith in Christ, when we declare he is Lord, when we become his disciples, we are not our own. We belong to him. We give our lives to him. That's, that's what salvation is, giving your life to the Lord. And if you've given it to him, then, well, I guess you don't own yourself anymore. In this world, people think, well, it's my life. I'll do what I want with it. You know, they own themselves. We don't. We've given ownership to another. We've responded to the call of Christ. And so we are his. And, and it says another place that, that we were bought by the blood of Christ when he gave his life for us. And so because of that, because we belong to Christ, his, his word, his teachings shape who we are. And that's the part the world doesn't like. Isn't it? The world wants to shape people. It wants to kind of be in control. There's a Romans 12, 2. I, I put one version in your sermon notes, but on the screen I have a different version. I, I love this, it's, this verse. It's, it's from the J.B. Phillips translation, but, but let's read it. It says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, right? But let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove and practice that the plan of God for you is good, right? Are you molded, shaped by the world and its ways, or are you shaped by his ways? Who do you belong to? Verse 20, Jesus starts off by saying, remember the word that I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. So, first of all, when did he say that? When did he speak that word to them? Actually, just a few hours earlier, that same night. He, he did, after Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, um, maybe you know that story, that they, none of them were willing to, do, to wash one another's feet, so Jesus took the lowliest position. He became the servant. He washed their feet. And after he did that, he says, a servant is not greater than his master. If I washed your feet, you should wash the feet of one another. And now he's saying, if they persecuted me, you should be ready for persecution. You are not above facing persecution and hostility from the world. And there is a humbling aspect to, to facing this, this antagonism from the world. You know, we, we live in our, we want to demand our rights. We want to have demand respect. How much more should the Son of God been respected? But instead, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So there's a humbling aspect to it. But then he, he, he adds to this, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. You are not in this alone. There are others who will keep my word. And that you'll find strength in knowing that there are other believers with us in this. That's one reason why we include in our prayers. We pray for, for Christians facing persecution around the world. This month we're praying for um, believers in Ukraine and also in Russia, knowing that they're facing 
hard times during, during this war. We find strength in knowing that there are others with us in this. Verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus lays out the ultimate reason for their animosity. They don't know the Father. They don't know God like we do. Now, they would not say it's for that reason. <laughs> they, they, would, they would give other reasons. You know, they would say, well, Perpetua was being unreasonable. You know, she just, all she had to do was offer some sacrifices to the, to the Roman emperor. That's all she, you know, that's, we, we, you know, they would give some specific reason. But um, ultimately, Jesus said, it's because they don't know God. Christians oftentimes have been seen as disloyal because we've given our ultimate loyalty to our Lord, not to the, the, the state, not to the government. Um, I, I was reading about the, the church in both Russia and Ukraine. And in Russia and Ukraine right now, they're both of the same background. You say the denomination, Orthodox Church. Right, both, so they have kind of the same heritage. And the, the Ukrainian believers are, are, were kind of speaking to the Russians like, hey, are, are you going to speak out against what your country's doing to us? And, and so I read how there, Christian Today gave an article about how there's an open letter by Russian pastors criticizing the war that's being waged in the name of their... So that would be seen as disloyal, possibly, by their countrymen. And it's certainly dangerous. Would we be brave enough? Would I be brave enough to, 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 to place loyalty to Christ over loyalty to a government, especially one known for killing people that go against them? Every generation has a different issue of, of, of what it measures, like whether your loyalty is with, with Christ or with the culture. I see in our time opposition really mainly being about the, the teaching of sexual ethics, right? What, what do we teach about sex and marriage and gender? Um, at East Glenville, we teach that God made us in his image, male and female, we teach that God made marriage be between a man and a woman. And we teach that sex is designed to be reserved between a married man and a married woman, that we shouldn't be having sex outside of marriage. That position puts us in a very different trajectory towards what our culture and society is loudly proclaiming and pushing right now. And for that, we are, you know, Christians are often opposed and I, don't, I just don't think the world understands why or what we do. Um, they don't understand why. That they would say we are being bigoted or narrow-minded or prudish or hypocritical, right? Uh, the late-night comics love to make fun of evangelical Christians for these positions we take. But ultimately we would know from what Jesus is saying, it's just that they don't know the Father. They don't know and understand God. They don't know his goodness and grace. They can't comprehend his ways. They don't understand why we, we feel this call to live holy lives unto the Lord. 
how, they don't understand how we've come to see that the boundaries God placed around sex are not because he's against us, but because he's for us and he wants the best for us. So every generation has different issues, but ultimately it's because they don't understand God and his ways. Moving on to verses 22 to 25, I'm not going to reread that whole part, but I, I, I sat some time trying to think, what is Jesus trying to say in this? It, it comes off as, as a bit harder to understand, and here's the key question. What did Jesus do that spurred their animosity towards him? Right? Why were they so against Jesus in his time? And, and I realized Jesus is making an interesting argument in this. He's saying the animosity was not brought about by what Jesus actually did. It's not what Jesus did that brought about their hostility towards him. Um, and instead, it, what, it, it was revealed by him coming. So their inner heart rebellion against God was already there before Jesus came. His coming and his actions did not cause that rebellion. It just revealed it. And it showed them to be guilty of rejecting God. So he came and he taught. But it wasn't his teaching that spurred them to hate him. Um, in fact, people were amazed at his teaching. He came and he did miracles. He did works of power and he healed people and he did, did good things. But it wasn't for those reasons that they hated him. In fact, it says, they hated me with, without reason. Their hearts were set against God, even as they put up a religious front the whole time. And if he had not come, they could, they could say, well, we, we didn't do anything bad. We, we kept the law. We did all the good religious deeds, but what is coming revealed is that it brought out their inner hypocrisy. It revealed who they were, and for that reason alone, they hated him without reason. The, the example from Scripture, I think, that, that shows this the best is from Mark 3. And a man with a withered hand comes to a religious service, synagogue service, and Jesus is there, and they're watching what Jesus does. And I guess that you weren't supposed to do a miracle on a Sabbath day, but Jesus sees this man and has compassion, and he heals the man with the shriveled hand. And this is how the religious leaders respond. It says, it says Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restore, restored. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. They hated him without reason. And Jesus, the Son of God, knew it would be so. And that what verse 25 says, it was foretold in the law that it would be that way. He came into the world knowing what he would face. He wasn't surprised either. Verse 26, but, says you're going to be hated by the world, but when the helper comes. We talked about this earlier in John 14. The helper is the, the word, the parakletos, the, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, the encourager. It's referring to the Holy Spirit. So yes, Jesus is leaving, but the Holy Spirit will come and will be with us. So we will have a resource that the Father will send, the Spirit of truth, 
and, and that, that spirit will be with us no matter what we face in this world. The Father will not leave us to face it alone. And that spirit will bear witness within us that we are sons and daughters of God and we need fear nothing from this world. What would you rather have? You and the Lord, just the Lord, that's it. Or on the other side, you know, another person with an army of 100,000 people. Which, which are you going to be, you know, which side would you pick? It's you and the Lord or, or a huge mammoth army. Which is safer? Romans 8.31. If God is for us, you know, what should we say about this? If God is for us, who can be against us? We've picked the right side. We need not fear no matter what. Verse 27, and this is key, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. It, it was essential that the disciples would carry on after Jesus would go. God's plan was dependent on the, the, the 12 disciples, 11 after Judas went away, the 11 disciples bearing witness about what they had seen and done. And God's plan is still dependent on us, his followers, bearing witness within our culture, our, our society, our communities, about Jesus and what he's done in our life. There's two aspects to, being, to bearing witness. One is allegiance. We publicly stand as a follower of Christ. Right? We, we put ourselves in his name. And the second is proclamation. We declare the message of Jesus within the society which we live. Now that not necessarily mean getting up on a soapbox and, and preaching at people or jumping on the, the lunch table at school and announcing Jesus to all our friends. But we, we look for open doors. We're ready to talk about Jesus when, when God opens a way. The, the verse, I think, that applies to every believer is 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Um, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense or to give an argument to anyone who asks the reason for the hope that you have, yet do this with gentleness and respect. So allegiance, and Jesus said in Mark 8.38, if anyone is ashamed of me, and my words in this generation, then, then why, should I, why should I not be ashamed of you? So, right, we're not ashamed of Jesus. We stand with him. And then secondly, when God opens doors, we're, we're ready to, to make a defense for our faith. So that's 1 Peter 3.15. We honor Christ as Lord. We're ready to give an answer for those who want to know, why do you do what you do? So that's, that's the passage we got today. Um, I want to switch gears and talk about, like, what do we do with this? How does this apply? How do we, we follow this? And so I just want to sit and talk because I'm, I'm going to, don't tell the worship team I'm going to steal this. But there's a, on how this applies, how we think about this, there are, um, 
I'm not so much in the mode of the teacher, but we, there's things to think out. And I have so many thoughts on all of this. I want us to kind of think out, well, what do we do with this? And the first thing that I, I, came to mind is I think it's important that we, we don't draw the wrong message from this. It's important that we do not develop an antagonistic attitude toward our culture or community. We got to keep this in perspective with John 3.16, right? You know, the world hates us, but remember, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God cares about the people in this world, even the ones who've come out against him, who don't believe in him. That, that God's love is like that, and, and he calls us into that same kind of love. We're called to have that same love for people, the people in this line. And so it, it, we can get this feeling like, oh, the world's against us. We got to be against them. No, we're not allowed to do that. We're not supposed to do that. Just as it talked about how Jesus had compassion on, on the hurting and the lost, we're called to have that compassion as well. So we, that's the first thought I have is, is, is we, we don't repay their attitude with the similar attitude. The second thing I want, I'm just thinking about is um, what, what are we facing? So I, the, the title, right? S- supportive, indifferent, or hostile? What have you faced? You know, I, I, I'm asking a lot of people, this is rhetorical, like we can't quite have a discussion on this, but, but, but how would you describe what you faced as a believer and what we face right now? And, and I, I've been noticing there's, it's changes over time. If you look back, especially in the 40s and 50s and 60s, you would look at society and how they were much more supportive of the church and of things that, that are going on, uh, there was a bias towards within society towards joining a church, right? You were expected to, to join a church and go to a church, have your kids baptized in a church or something like that, right? Or, you know, um, it, was just, it was just normal. And if you didn't do that, you're kind of doing something. You just weren't following expectations. Um, it, do, you, do you all know what the blue laws? Yeah, uh, so if you're younger, ask someone, you know, ask your grandfather. Like, the blue laws were laws that, that they used to have that, that emphasized keeping Sundays separate, right? And the big, biggest thing was you couldn't buy alcohol on Sundays. Oh, can you do that now? Yeah, okay. I've still seen places where you still can't. But, um, but that, that was the idea that it kind of like society, societal laws were supportive of biblical ideas and biblical... Um, we had the ability at one point in time to promote Christianity in public places like schools, right? There used to be prayer in school, um, promoted within school. Uh, I remember getting a Gideon Bible in the fourth grade. They let them hand those out. And one time I was even invited when I was doing youth ministry to give an Easter message in a, uh, an assembly, a school assembly. I'm like, so they, they, I, I doubt if that's going to... Nick, have you been asked to give any... No. Uh, and I doubt if you ever will. Uh, in other, other ways, the culture upheld biblical standards and, and things like that. Like, like, think of the old blockbuster movies, the Ten Commandments. We just re- watched that not too long ago. Um, 
you know, or the, they had a whole bunch of, of biblical epic movies, you know, that a little different than do they, you know, they, they come out with some nowadays, but, and then, you know, Hollywood used to be careful about portraying, portraying sex, you know, in movies or sex outside of marriage, especially. And so there was a point in time where it felt like the culture, the wind was at our back and, and people were joining churches. And then it sort of shifted. And I would say in my growing up years as a younger Christian, I would have said the world was indifferent. Um, you know, I, I would say that mandated prayer in school had ended, but you know what? We created our own prayer group at, at my school. And so we got together and we did it on our own. And that was some ways better. Um, you know, the pop culture stopped upholding biblical standards. So you know what you did? You had to be careful what movies you rented. You couldn't assume. You couldn't just rent anything you wanted um, because it might lead you to, to, to watch something you shouldn't watch. Um, if you stood for Christ, you were prone to being made fun of. It was a risk to be known as, it was okay to go to church, but if you were too into it, that's when they would make fun of you, right? So that's sort of what I felt. That's what feels normal to me is kind of the, the, the culture as a free marketplace of ideas where you can be a Christian and you can take your stand, but you also know that there's going to be people who are, are doing other things. And, that the, you know, and here's the thing. I was always confident the message of the Savior will win out. If it's a free marketplace and both sides get, a, get to, to air their voices, um, that the, you know, God has a, the ability to, to get the word to people can hear and respond. Um, I think one of the glorious things about America that we have is we built the freedom of religion into our constitution. We should not take that for granted. Um, now, that freedom includes my right to believe and worship and live that out. It also includes the right of someone else to, to reject it and be an atheist. And I could live with that. And, and that's, I guess, I, I really don't want government compulsion for our faith. You know, sometimes it maybe feels good, you know, if we have the government pushing you know, people to, to join us in, in church. But here's the thing. Is I suspect ultimately it would be used against us. So, um, and moreover, I think God wants people to freely seek him. And he does not want, he wants people to give the worship of their heart freely and not of compulsion. So, indifferent. I could live with indifferent. But I've seen a shift in the last 20 years. I'd be curious if you have as well, um, from indifference to, I think, growing hostility in, in certain areas. Now, it's not culture-wide. Um, there's been some great Christian movies out, you know, and, and, and you get some good stuff. But, but I've, I've noticed efforts to exclude Christianity from the public sphere. Um, I was talking to Jessica about intervarsity groups that have been kicked off campus. I've heard of other such things, Christian groups that, that you know, they don't, you know, they try to shut them out of the public sphere. Um, I've seen mockery, uh, especially of efforts to uphold biblical sexual ethics. Ethics, you're prone to being. Mocked. I think of Tim Tebow, and how he was mocked in different ways. Um, there's a verse, First Peter four four. It, it, not, nothing's on your screen for this, but I think this this always catches me. It says they are talking about the wor world. It says they are surprised 
that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse upon you. Yeah, I see that sometimes. I wonder, have you? Um, I think I see irrational anger. And you know what stood out to me? And it stood out because I, I was getting ready to move from Ohio to New York it, it, right at the beginning of COVID was that how they tried to set up a Samaritan's Purse, the same group we're supporting in Ukraine. They, they were going to do a Samaritan's Purse field hospital in Central Park. And I just saw a lot of animosity. I'm not sure if they were even able to open because of the animosity and hostility. And that just seems so irrational. A group who's offering free medical care in the midst of a crisis. And, and there were people that were saying how, talking about how that was horrible. And I just see an irrationality about it at times. Um, I, see, I see the animosity towards Chick-fil-A because it's run by Christians. And I'm like, what's up with that? So, so I've seen that shift in the last 20 years. And so I've been, I think about this a lot. This is why I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, you know, not preaching as much. Um, and so my first thought is, it is right to be concerned of that shift, right? And, and to take note of it. But I think we'll also we need to be careful. We don't go from concern into fear and defensiveness. Um, there's a, a constitutional legal lawyer guy. His name's David French, and I, I read some of his stuff. And he reminds us, every time religious freedom comes up in the Supreme Court, religious freedom wins. So there's still safeguards within our society for such things. Um, we, we don't know, it's right to be concerned, but we don't want to go overboard on that either. Um, the other thing I've observed is there's very much a generational difference in how you perceive this hostility. And and I will, I'll just note, because I think because previous generations felt more support from the world, and as that support has been lost, that itself feels like, hey, we're losing ground. Where I've seen younger Christians, they just sort of roll with it. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I've kind of observed, like, you know, this is how it is. You just got to be smart. You know, you can't be stupid about how you do things. And so I've seen how older Christians get a little more worked up about some of these things and like, oh no, the world is ending because of this court case or whatever. And younger Christians are like, eh, just don't be stupid. So I think about that, you know, just take note of it. Um, the other thing I think about is what led to this hostility? What, what, what's the source of it? And I do, I do think there's something to... Um, I remember noticing more and the, the first thing, like you had the televangelist scandals, right? Like, like Christian preachers are all about money kind of things. And I think some of that like hurt our reputation. And even still, I was talking in the office today about some preacher who, who uh, has four jets, you know, that, peop, that there are evangelical preachers that are getting rich off the gospel, rich off of widows' donations. And that, the world looks at that and says, is that what you're about? Just money? Um, and then, of course, in the last 20 years, there has been an abundance of, of church scandals, uh, sex scandals. 
Now, we can point to the Catholics and say, oh, it's just over there. Oh, but there's been plenty in the evangelical church and Protestant church as well. So I think some of that has played a part in the shift from, you know, supportive to animal. And when I, I pay attention to friends who, who criticize Christianity, I try to listen, what, what are they talking? And, and oftentimes it's how we have fallen short, how the church has fallen short in living up to the ideals of Christ. So that's a part we got to think about. Um, and then I have this thought. The light shines brighter in the darkness. The more hostile the culture is to followers of Christ, the more our faith in him sticks out. It's actually an opportunity to bring glory to Christ. If we stay faithful, even through the mockery or whatever we face, I think people are going to notice. That's worth something. Um, and then... I think of this, each age, so I'm just going through points I've been thinking about. Each age offers different kinds of resistance to being a faithful disciple of, of the gospel, right? You know, society goes up and down and supportive versus hostile and, and all that, but each age offers different challenges to living for Jesus Christ as his disciple. And I don't want to go into it because I'm already going a little bit long. And I, I hear there's something happening after. Is there some? Yeah. So, um, but Jesus told the parable of the sower. And maybe if I could just ask you to, to read that. It's, I think it's in Mark 13 or Matthew 13, one or the other. Look it up. Par parable of the sower. And it's about how the seed, is, the seed of the gospel is spread. And it, it falls on different kinds of grounds. And on one ground, it's a hard path. And the seed gets eaten by birds. And on one ground, it's rocky. So it faces the, the beating of the sun. It, doesn't, it never takes root. And on one ground, it grows up amidst thorns. And I notice there's three, three that are hostile. And could it be some, some of it supportive? Like it grows, the thorns are like a supportive thing, but, but it offers other things that will distract you from faith. And sometimes it's like the, the, the rocky where it's, it's hostile, right? That, Jesus specifically says that's about facing persecution and giving up. And then you got just plain indifference. It's like the path. The path is well trodden and, you know, pe people never, they don't even notice the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So I, I can think all about that. But the point being is that whatever generation we're living in, there are going to be challenges to following Jesus. Even if we don't face persecution, we're still going to face opposition. The world wants to shape you one way, but if you are going to be a follower of Jesus, you are going to be shaped by him and his word. And so do not let the attitude of the world pull you away from trusting in the Savior, or instead let it drive you to trust him all the more. If I want to drive on one point, do not let the attitude of the world, our culture and society, pull you away from following Christ have it drive you to trusting him all the more. I want to end by telling you about one believer in Ukraine. And um, his name is Anatoly Berezhny. Um, he, he, he went to Irpine Bible Church in uh, West, West Ukraine. He evacuated his wife and daughter... And then went back. 
he went back into to near Kiev. And, and he went back with his church because they had a program that was, they were helping others, other women and children evacuate the country. So out of, out of a way to serve the Lord, he, he went back into the danger zone. And the, the, the picture, they, they took a picture and ended up in the New York Times of, of him, his body, and that of the one, the one mother and child who he was leading away, he was helping to evacuate. So he, he gave his life. And that was worth it, right? Faith in Jesus calls for courage. No matter what situation we faith, faith in Jesus calls for courage. So let us set aside whatever worries we have and let's trust in the Savior. Father, I thank you that whatever we face in this world, you do not leave us alone. You will give us the strength to hold fast, the strength to to walk with you, to love you, to know you. And so, Father, we just ask and we put ourselves in your hands, trusting in your goodness and love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.